Welcome to The Last Month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Our guests today are Finnegan attorneys Cora Holt and Ryan McDonald. So thank you both for joining us. Ryan, I'll start with you first. I understand that the court had heard oral arguments in Atlanta this past month as opposed to its normal location in Washington, D.C. Can you tell us a little bit about why that was? Sure. So the Federal Circuit regularly hears arguments outside of D.C. as part of its nationwide jurisdiction and the statutory requirement that it provides reasonable opportunities for citizens to appear before the court. Um, so the court usually picks one argument week out of the year and it travels outside of D.C. and hears arguments at colleges and universities. So this year for the October argument week, the court had two panels sit in various locations in the Atlanta area from October 3rd through the 5th. And these arguments were held at the federal courthouse in Atlanta and the law schools at the University of Georgia, Mercer University, Emory University, the John Marshall Law School, and Georgia State University. The court also announced that next year it expects to sit one week in the Northern California area for argument week. And the Federal Circuit Bar Association, uh, I understand, also hosted a panel uh, with the six judges who went down to Atlanta for the arguments. And the the panel discussed various topics. Can you tell us what the judges had to say about the future expected changes to the appeal timeline and the types of cases that the court has been hearing? Sure. So, um, so as you mentioned, one of the topics of conversation on this panel was the court's recent backlog of appeals being scheduled for oral arguments. The court usually holds oral argument the first full week of each month. Um, and recently, the court has not been using all three of its courtrooms and its D.C. courthouse each day of argument week and has not been sitting all five days uh, during that argument week. And this has been one of the reasons why recently it has taken about eight months for oral argument to be scheduled after a briefing has been completed. So these judges noted that starting in December, the court expects that it will return to having oral arguments uh, all five days, so Monday through Friday of argument week, and um, in all three courtrooms each day. And the court expects that this increase in oral arguments being held will drastically reduce this current eight-month wait time for having oral arguments scheduled. The judges also talked about some different trends they've noticed recently in terms of the various cases they're getting appeals from in the various jurisdictional areas. The judges noted that there's been a large upswing in appeals from the Merit Systems Protection Board, and this is likely due to quorum finally being restored at the MSPB. There's also noticed that there is a slight decrease in appeals from the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, and that they expect a significant increase in appeals from the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, and that this is because the Board of Veterans Appeals has increased the number of judges on its bench from around 80 to about 120. Hmm. All right, some interesting insights there. Did the panel have any tips for practitioners? Yeah, so there were a few different areas that each of the judges touched on. Um, the two newest members of the court, Judges Cunningham and Stark, uh, noted that they were surprised at the regularity in which appellants throw what they refer to as the kitchen sink into their briefs. And this is, of course, referring to throwing as many arguments and issues into their briefs as they can. Um, these two judges, to no surprise, stress that the parties should try to narrow the issues they include in their briefs to no more than three in any given appeal. 
Um, Judge Stoll expressed that she wanted to see more discussion of case law in each of the briefs as opposed to just citing multiple cases in a string site. And she said that this was especially true for cases where they appear to be decisive of the issues that are raised in the briefs on appeal. And then uh, finally, Judge Moore expressed some frustration with parties' overuse of acronyms in their briefs and kind of counseled against using too many acronyms as this could be seen as a way of circumventing the court's word count limits on, uh, on briefs. Hmm. Okay, well, thank you, Ryan. Cora, let's start talking about some of the most recent decisions. The first case for discussion today is called Volvo Penta of the Americas LLC versus Brunswick Corporation. Can you tell us a little bit about that case? Sure. So this was a case decided uh, towards the end of August, addressing obviousness and particularly the nexus requirement for objective indicia. Uh, Generally speaking, the case related to uh, engine systems for boats. So Volvo holds a patent, which is directed to a steerable inboard-outboard motor with forward-facing propulsion. And uh, as a general matter, forward-facing propulsion was said to be associated with several advantages, um, including increasing the distance between the propeller and the water, which is great for wakeboarders, other water sports uh, enthusiasts. So Volvo markets um, a product called the Forward Drive that embodies this motor. And in 2020, Brunswick, one of Volvo's competitors, uh, launched a competing product called the Bravo 4S. And there was no dispute in this case that Brunswick's motor also embodied the patent. Um, And so on the day that Brunswick launched their product, um, they filed for an IPR challenging Volvo's patent. And during the IPR, uh, the board found that the prior art provided sufficient motivation to render Volvo's patent claims obvious and then rejected uh, Volvo's objective uh, indicia of non-obviousness and Volvo appealed. Hmm. Okay, so on appeal, the Federal Circuit vacated and remanded the board's decision. The court agreed with the board's finding on motivation to combine, but disagreed with the board's finding on objective indicia, which it found was sufficient reason to vacate and remand. Can you explain where the court disagreed with the board? Sure. So, well, first, the parties actually settled this case after they finished briefing it while it was pending on appeal. So, interestingly, Brunswick didn't argue this case. Uh, Instead, uh, the PTO intervened to defend the board's decision, which we often see in, in cases where the petitioner drops out to the settlement. Uh, the case was heard by Judge Lori Moore and Cunningham, and Judge Lori authored the opinion. And as you said, the, the disagreement between the court and the board was on the question of objective evidence. And, and there first, the, board, the court agreed with the board that Volvo wasn't entitled to a presumption of nexus because Volvo had showed, failed to show coextensiveness. And in particular, Volvo had included only a single sentence asserting that Bravo's accused product was coextensive with the claims. And both the board and the court found that this single sentence pr- failed to provide any reasoning or argument, was just conclusory, and therefore uh, Volvo wasn't entitled to a presumption of nexus. But where, where the court then disagreed with the board is whether uh, Volvo had nonetheless independently established nexus absent a presumption. Uh, at the board level, uh, the board had found that Volvo hadn't made any clear arguments that the success of Brunswick's accused motor was tied directly to the claimed features. But this is where the Federal Circuit disagreed. Uh, The court pointed to Volvo's arguments that specific Brunswick documents um, referenced Volvo's forward drive engine product and the benefits of delivering what it called 
in the documents was a comparable forward-facing stern drive that would match Volvo's engine. The court also pointed to arguments made in Volvo's SIR reply that the inventive combination of the propeller arrangement and the steering axis location in the claims is what provided the benefits over the prior art. Now, on appeal, counsel for the PTO argued that to the extent uh, Volvo had identified specific elements as the unique characteristics of the invention, those elements already existed in the prior art and therefore shouldn't be uh, used to establish nexus. The Federal Circuit rejected this argument, uh, finding that the board didn't rely on this rationale and, and therefore it wasn't a proper basis on which to affirm the decision. The uh, other place that the Federal Circuit disagreed with the board's ultimate conclusion on obviousness was its weighing of the objective indicia in that conclusion. So according to Judge Lori, the board didn't adequately support its conclusion that regardless of nexus, the objective indicia somewhat weighed in favor of non-obviousness, but was not enough to weigh out what to outweigh Brunswick's strong evidence of obviousness. In the court's opinion, even accepting the board's conclusions about the weight of the factors, the board never addressed the sum total of those factors and whether as a whole they were sufficient to demonstrate non-obviousness. Okay, so what was the result of this case? So the court vacated and remanded the board's decision. It's now back uh, before the board. As noted, the petitioner has dropped out in this case, so it remains to be seen a little bit uh, what happens from this point going forward. All right. Ryan, we also want to talk about Boxalta versus Genentech. Can you tell us a little bit about this case and how it got to the federal circuit? Sure. So the patent in this appeal relates to using antibodies to treat hemophilia A, which is a blood clotting disorder. Um, in the normal blood clotting process, a key step requires two enzymes referred to as factors 8 and 9, or 9A, to form a complex that then activates a third enzyme, factor 10. Um, hemophilia A, the activity of factor 8 is absent. Um, so the patented invention essentially involves using an antibody that binds to factor 9, which increases factor 9's activity and allows it to activate factor 10, even though factor 8 is absent. So the at-issue claims here recite an isolated antibody or antibody fragment that binds factor 9 or factor 9A and increases the procoagulant activity of factor 9A. This case made its way to the federal circuit because the accused infringer, Genentech, moved for summary judgment of invalidity of the asserted claims for lack of enablement. And the district court judge, which interestingly enough, is the federal circuit's own Judge Dyke, who was sitting by designation in Delaware, uh, granted the motion for summary judgment. Hmm. So what did the federal circuit do on appeal? So this appeal was heard by Chief Judge Moore and Judges Clevenger and Chen, and the opinion was authored by Chief Judge Moore. Um, the Federal Circuit affirmed the district court's grant of summary judgment. And to reach this conclusion, the court applied the Supreme Court's recent Amgen decision, which requires the patent specification to enable the full scope of the invention as defined by its claims, while still allowing for a reasonable amount of experimentation. The Federal Circuit here determined that Vaxalta's claims cover all antibodies or that do two things. Uh, first is bind to factor 9 or 9A, and the second is increase the procoagulant activity of factor 9A. Uh, the court found that the evidence of record showed that this included uh, up to millions and millions of potential antibodies. And of these millions of potential antibodies, the patent specification disclosed only eight, 11 antibodies that performed these two claim functions. 
And in order to produce the other undisclosed antibodies, the specification simply described what was called an iterative trial and error process that the inventors had used to create the 11 antibodies that were in the specification. Additionally, the court found that the patent specification described no common qualities among the antibodies that have these two claim functions or any description of why the 11 disclosed antibodies in the specification perform these two claim functions. And therefore, it was not possible to predict what antibodies would perform those claim functions. So all in all, um, in order to practice the full scope of the claimed invention, the patent specification essentially told a skilled artisan to make candidate antibodies, and then they had to screen them in order to determine which ones perform the claim functions. And the court found that this failed the antigen enablement requirement and therefore affirmed the district court's grant of summary judgment for lack of enablement. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Ryan, and, and thank you, Cora. You've been listening to a podcast from Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. We've been speaking with Finnegan attorneys Cora Holt and Ryan McDonald. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.